Uh, so this morning we're talking about a plea, one of the psalmists pleading for restoration and for salvation. So I just have two thoughts, and then we're going to jump into the text quickly because there's a lot to cover. It's two thoughts. Many of you are in need of restoration. Let me tell you what I mean by that. That you know Jesus, you have faith in Jesus, but you do not regularly seek His face. You feel like He is distant because you have drawn away. You follow after the things of the world and wonder why you're struggling in your faith. Instead of digging into God's Word, you're digging into your Twitter feed or Facebook or whatever it is. You need to be restored before the face of a holy God. This is where the psalmist is this morning. He's looking at his brothers and seeing them being tormented by outside attackers. There's also a plea for salvation. Now salvation, when it comes to Israel, is often physical. They need to be saved from their enemies, but it is always spiritual underneath. And there's some of you in this room who need salvation. There are some of you who are saved and have no joy in your salvation. But some of you need to cry out to God for salvation. We all fall in one of these, these camps this morning. Do we cry out to God to be restored in the fullness of His presence, His face to shine on us, to find joy in our salvation, and intimately draw near to Him? Or have we never drawn near to Him? Are we still worshiping gods of our own making? Are we still exalting ourselves and putting ourselves up on the throne? We need to cry out to God for salvation. Because we are nothing and lost without Him. Either way, I encourage you to learn from the psalmist this morning and learn how to pray. So if you would, open your Bibles up to Psalm 80. Psalm 80. To the choir master, according to the lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt, and you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root, and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man who you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, 
Let your face shine that we may be saved. Let's pray. Oh Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to cry out to you. Teach us to be honest with you. Not to hide our fears and our doubts, but, to, but let them drive us to you. Help us with the psalmist to know where our restoration comes from, where our salvation comes from. Help us with the psalmist to know that you are our shepherd who guides and cares for us. You are the vine dresser who plants and cultivates and prunes us. You are the Father who loves us. Sent your Son that we might be adopted and call us sons. Lord, I don't know the depths of the darkness and the doubt and the worry and the pain that are in the hearts here this morning, but you do. I will never know what everyone wrestles with. They may never let anyone else know, but you know. Lord, I pray that your spirit would convict them. Guide them. Teach them to cry out to you that we may be restored in right relationship with you. That what was lost in the fall, cursed by sin, would be restored in fullness through the work of Jesus Christ. Pray that your spirit would teach us that this morning. Instruct us through your word. Guide us. That we would reflect his image. Follow him that our God would be glorified to the praise of his name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so before we get into the psalm, we have to look at the historical setting. So what's going on here? What's the occasion for this psalm? Because it seems like there's something specific going on. There's some, there's some real hurt. There's some, some real tears. What is the psalmist dealing with here? So we don't exactly know, but we have a pretty good indication by some of the details. So in the introduction, uh, we don't know what According to the Lilies is. It's probably another popular tune. Um, a testimony is probably a, a recounting of something from history. And Asaph is probably not the same Asaph that we saw at the beginning of, of the third book. So when the Levitical priest families would minister in the temple, there would be temple families, and Asaph was a, a prominent temple family. These are the singers of Asaph. These are generations later from, from David. This is probably during the time of King Hezekiah. This is most likely in either the invasion of Assyria or when Assyria is wreaking havoc all around them and is threatening to invade the northern kingdom of Israel. So if you're not familiar with this period in Israel's history, they're a divided nation. Geographically, Assyria is this monster who you have Judah who's in, this, in the, uh, the, the land of Canaan, you know, now the, uh, the uh, promised land. You know, you've got the Mediterranean on one side, the Euphrates on the other. This is fertile land. Israel is above that. And then above them is Assyria. So, so, Isra- so Israel is a buffer between Judah and Assyria. And so when Assyria starts pressing into Israel, now the priests of Judah are watching their brothers who are being ravaged by these pagans. 
And they're crying out to God for their brothers, but also knowing that they're not far behind because Assyria wants to take over the whole world. And Judah knows that if Israel Israel is exposed, they're not far behind. So that's the, the historical geographical setting. But there's also a spiritual setting. God does not just arbitrarily let nations invade his people. Israel is being invaded because they are rebellious. They're seeking after other gods. They're, they're, they're lifting up themselves instead of exalting God. They have forgotten the God who brought them out of Egypt, the God who provides for everything. And what they're doing is they're moving further and further away from God. And so after many calls of many prophets who they do not listen to and they, and, and they mock God gives them what they want. They want a life away from God. Well, he gives that to them, but he gives it under the invasion of Assyria, which will happen uh, about the 8th century B.C. So, what we're dealing with here is a rebellious people. Israel fell first, but Judah is not far behind. Now, Judah is, is crying out, interceding for their brothers, but a couple centuries later, they will be taken by the Babylonians. And so things are not right, and the, the psalmist recognizes things are not right. But what we have to realize is that God is right in judging them. God is right because his people, like a harlot, have gone all after another husband. They've been unfaithful to their covenant God. And so he sends in Assyria to be his hand of judgment. And so what we're going to see in this psalm is all the action good and bad, is attributed to God. The psalmist knows that, th- that their God is sovereign, that whether the sheep are healthy or whether they are starved, it's because of the shepherd. Whether the vine is flourishing or the vine is being ravaged by wild boars is because God is in control of all things. Far be it from God to not be in control of what's going on. So there's only one place where they could go. Only one place to go to cry out to a holy God. Restoration and also punishment is in the hand of their God. And we're going to see that in three major analogies. God as shepherd, God as vine dresser, and God as father. And so the setup of this text is chiastic. And if you don't know what a chiasm is, I'm going to put the outline up on the screen because I think this is helpful. That what a chiasm is, is this is a, a simple chiasm. So you have parallel ideas at the beginning and the end, and then parallel ideas in the middle, which are to draw your attention to the center of the text. Now, in Hebrew poetry, chiasms can be four or, or, or five lines deep. This one's a little more simple. But it's always meant to begin and end in the same place, but draw you to a central point in the middle. And so the literary and theological center of this uh, psalm is what we see in verse 8 and 9 and 10 and 11. This is the, the, the center geographically, but also literally, or, um, theologically. Grammatically, but also theologically. Um, and the, the point is that there's a vine that God brought out of, out, of the, out of Egypt. So this is the more caring portion of the Exodus. We've seen the, the, the redemptive part, but now with the vine dresser, we see, we, we see care and we see cultivation. That's the focus. That is what the, the psalmist is appealing to here. So hopefully that, that's helpful as you think through walking through this psalm. 
So let's jump in verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. The first analogy is that of shepherd, which we touched on last week, so we won't touch on as much. This is common throughout Scripture. This is a culture that was used to this type of language. They knew what shepherds were. Remember, when Israel went into Egypt, they, they were shepherds. And so they see God as their high shepherd. And why is that important? Because a shepherd feeds the sheep. A shepherd cares for the sheep. A shepherd directs the sheep. And a shepherd corrects the sheep. Because it is for the sheep's good. Because sheep are dumb, stupid animals who, without guidance, correction, and teaching, will eat themselves off of a cliff. In that way, they are like a flock. In that way, we are like a flock. And this, this uh, an analogy is crying out to the God who cares for them, who nurtures them, who teaches them. But there's an interesting command here. Give ear. Listen. Is God not listening? Is it that God is not able to listen? Or is it God is not willing to listen because of their sin? There is a separation here because of the continual rebellion of Israel. But there's an appeal. You who led Joseph like a flock. Anytime you see a prominent name here, it's, it's referring to the nation of Israel. Joseph was the one who led Israel in, in Egypt. And, and the, the children of Joseph, the, the product of Joseph's high rank in Egypt, was led out in the Exodus. You led them before. I know you can lead them again. Do what you've done before. You've delivered us and saved us before. Do it again. This is the appeal. This is where we begin. But it's not just the shepherd he appeals to. Look at the second half of this verse. You, the shepherd, who are enthroned upon the cherubim. The shepherd is also a king. Enthroned upon the cherubim. This is language of Judah because Judah holds the temple. Judah holds the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies is the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle is the ark of the covenant. And there are two golden cherubim looking at each other. And in the middle is a mercy seat. You, God, who are enthroned upon the cherubim, upon the mercy seat, these are shadows of a heavenly reality. These are the earthly things that made with human hands that are meant to look up to heaven. God, this very mini version of, of your throne room is what we appeal to because we know there are real cherubim who are flying around, who are praising you all day long. And you sit enthroned above them. Your throne is high and lifted up. You are holy Holy, holy, that is the God that we appeal to. And in between the cherubim, there's a mercy seat. God, we appeal to your mercy. You are our shepherd. You are a merciful king. And this is who we appeal to. This is where we should start in our prayers. If you do not first approach a king on a throne, the only source of mercy, then you don't understand prayer at all. He's a shepherd who cares, but he's a king who reigns. And it is on that mercy seat where we, as God's people, can find mercy. So, as I said, I think this is during the time of Hezekiah's reign. Why? Because it's a very similar prayer. If you have in your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings. If you don't know where 2 Kings is, go back a few books. If you get to Chronicles, go further. If you get to Samuel, go back a little bit. 2 Kings chapter 19. Very similar language. The situation here, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria is taunting and tormenting Israel. He sends a letter to Hezekiah threatening Hezekiah, mocking God. Hezekiah 
does not write a letter back. Hezekiah is not in our outrage culture where he just sends a letter back and tells him how upset he is with him. What does he do? He takes this letter and he brings it before God. He lays this letter before God and here's what he says. This is 2 Kings 19 verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Listen to how he prays. I'm guessing here, but I think either the Levite or Hezekiah influenced the the prayer of the other. Look at all the parallels here. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now... O Lord our God, save us please from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. The motivation in this prayer is beautiful and it is right. His motivation in the prayer is not for his own safety, it's for God's glory. He recognized that Assyria has overthrown all these other nations with all these false gods, but this is not a false god. They cannot overthrow him. God, for your own namesake, for your own glory, stand up, save us from them. And this is where we find ourselves. as an appeal to the king that he may shine forth. God's glory is like a blinding sun that enlightens and warms everything that it touches. You who are thrown upon the cherubim, shine forth. Picking up in verse 2. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Before meaning in front of. So these three names... If you're not familiar with Hebrew genealogy, these are the favored sons. These are the sons of of Rachel. And so Rachel had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Whenever Ephraim is, is mentioned, generally speaking, it usually refers to all of Israel, the northern kingdom. And Manasseh, his brother, was, was with him of the ten tribes. Whenever Benjamin is mentioned, he refers to the southern kingdom. So at the same time, He is appealing to the favored sons of Rachel, but a divided kingdom. And this is is an illustration of all Israel. He is appealing on behalf of all of Israel. God, your people are divided. Your favored sons, before them, stir up your might. God is mighty, but right now it seems like his might is dormant. Seems like God's might is missing. Just like he is withholding his ear, he is withholding his might on behalf of Israel because they are wicked. And then there's appeal that goes along with it. Stir up your might and come to save us. They're asking for physical salvation from their enemies. But prophetically, there's a salvation that is needed from themselves and their own wickedness. And as the psalmist often does, speaks of a current situation, but also greater spiritual truths. Verse 3, restore us, O God. Here we get the refrain. This psalm plays like a hymn. We get verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. The first chorus, I'm going to spend the most time breaking this down, and we won't spend as much time as we go forward. 
but restore us, O God. There is physical restoration that is needed. Israel is divided and either conquered or about to be. There's also spiritual restoration. Restore us spiritually, O God. We are far from you. We are wicked people. We are people of unclean lips. We need to be restored into your grace. When we think of restoration, we think of that which is not how it should be. It needs to be restored. It is separated. It is broken. It needs to be, it needs to be healed. Their darkened hearts have separated them from God. And because of their darkened hearts and their separation from God, God has sent Assyria to separate them physically from their God. This is the restoration that they are seeking. And how is that restoration accomplished? Let your face shine. This is the connection to the restoration. The, The light of God's face is the light of His blessing. Anyone grew up up north, like north of the Mason Dixon line? Uh, you know what it's like to grow up in the dark and not see the sun. You, you Floridians, you have no idea what it's like to not see the sun for a month, two months, three months. Seasonal affective disorder, sad, it's a real thing. This is what Israel is feeling on a spiritual sense. They have not seen the sun in days. Every time they walk outside, it is dark, and, and the cloud is because of their own sin. God, we need you to shine on us. We are miserable without you. It is cold and dark. Because you have not shined on us. They know that even with their sin, they're the ones who are responsible. It is God who can rectify the situation. They cannot do it. Let your face shine. This should remind us of the ironic prayer. There's two passages I want to look at that talk about this prayer, and it'll be up on the screen. It's first November, or excuse me, November. Thinking about cold and dark. Um, Numbers chapter 6. So you can turn there because I'm not going to put the verses up. I'm going to make you guys work today. Numbers chapter 6, we should know this. We've used this as our benediction many times. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. What does this mean? Lord, bless you and keep you. How does he bless you and keep you? By shining his face on you. Remember when Moses saw God's face, he glowed. If God does not shine his face on you, you are dark and you are dead and there is no life for you. And he is the only source of life. But by his face shining on you, there is grace. There is mercy from your sin. The light of his countenance, he lifts up his countenance, he looks on you with his face. Just by God looking on you, he will give you peace. There is peace in the light of his face. There is is grace in his presence. There's another one that looks at this worked out practically. What does this mean? Look at Psalm 4. Psalm 4 is another one where the enemies are mocking the people of God. And there's a similar prayer by the psalmist. Look what he says, Psalm 4, starting in verse 6. There are many who say, who will show us some good? All right, is there anything good in this life? What is there? Who does the psalmist go to? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. What does that look like? What is, what is the light of God's face? Look at the two things here. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. The light of God's face is joy. It is contentment. When others are getting rich, when others are feasting, when others have everything that they think will make them happy, the light of God's face gives his people joy. Even in poverty, even in sickness, his people have joy. That is what it means to have God's face shine on you. 
But also, verse 8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I can have joy in all situations, and I can have peace, shalom, wholeness in all situations. I lack nothing because God shines his face on me. And when you know that you are his, and his face shines on you, you have peace when you wake up, you have peace when you go to bed. Because he provides everything you need, and there's nothing apart from him that you need. This is what the psalmist is getting at. Lord, make us complete. Give us peace. Shine your face on us. Be gracious to us. Give us joy again in our salvation. That, there's a purpose in this. That we may be saved. There is no salvation apart from the face of the Lord. There is no salvation apart from his light shining on you. This is the supreme biblical need. Above all else, we need to be saved. We are separated from God. We are dead. The Assyrians have conquered us. We are wicked in and of ourselves. We need salvation in a world of wickedness and oppression and enemies. The psalmist knows that the restoration is in the light of God's face, and that restoration is their salvation. And so for us, it's a natural thing to call out to God. We should petition him, seek his restoration. I think sometimes we are too timid. The psalmists are bold. The psalmists are confident in who God is. They, they call upon God's attributes because they are unshakable. They are unchanging. God, we call on you. And sometimes there is sin that's making you miserable, as it should. And many times, God just needs to remove all the comfort and security that you're resting on so that you can seek him. So in, in Israel, there is rebellion and God is punishing them for it. But in Judah, their comfort's being shaken up. Their security's being shaken up. We got this big security blanket above us called Israel. And if Israel falls, well, we're exposed. It shouldn't take sin or discomfort, or uncertainty to make us cry out to God. So there's going to be a first for us this morning. Uh, there's an important lesson we can learn from a convicted terrorist, an important spiritual lesson. Andrew Brunson is a convicted terrorist in Turkey. He was charged with espionage and trying to overthrow the Turkish government. He was facing three life sentences. They described him as a man who hates Turks, who wanted to cut off their heads. They called him the dark priest. They claimed that he worked for the CIA and that it, it, was, it was his mission to subvert their entire government. But his real crime was preaching the gospel and planting churches for 23 years in Turkey. Through a long, drawn-out court process, by God's grace, he served only two years of his three life sentences. But two years in solitary confinement. What's amazing is that he credits this with restoring his intimacy with God. Look what he says. He spoke a few weeks ago, and I pulled this out of, out of his talk. Listen to what he says. I found in prison that the most important thing was to cultivate a devotion to God and seek His face. And this is actually what I miss about prison. Stop. 
lot of you know I, I did prison ministry for a couple years. And there is no one more receptive to the gospel than someone facing time. And as soon as they get out into the world, they, many of them quickly forget what we talked about. But to say that I miss prison for this reason, look at what he goes on to say, is that the conditions, the isolation, and the fear drove me to seek him with desperation as a matter of spiritual survival. Have you ever approached God as a matter of spiritual survival? As if I will not survive without you. There is nothing else I can draw on. He says, I am not forced by anything now in my circumstances. And I can feel the drop-off of intensity in seeking Him. Wow. How many of us do not seek God's face like that unless we are forced to? How many of us will cry out to Him in a moment of survival and need, but in our day-to-day lives, we neglect our need for Him? You know the feeling? Whenever felt this way, like, man, I was really close to God when I was suffering. I was praying every day and reading Scripture when I needed it as my spiritual food. But now that things are going well, man, I miss the dark days. This is profound. And I pray that we don't wait for trials to seek His face. I pray that we Go to God all the time as if we need Him to survive, even when things are going well. This is our first stanza. Second one. O Lord God of hosts. We're continuing the shepherd analogy. So he's crying out to the shepherd. There's, there's shepherd language here. I want to read this whole thing and then we'll uh, point out a couple things as we walk back through. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contentment for our enemies, and your enemies laugh among themselves. The only other time in the Psalms where God is spoken of as a shepherd is Psalm 23. Does this sound like Psalm 23? It actually sounds very different than Psalm 23. Because in Psalm 23, everything's good. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Does this sound like people... Who shall not want? They are wanting right now. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. These are people who are not laying in comfort. There's no still water. This is stormy seas. He restores my soul. They need restoration. This is what they were crying out for. The psalmist David in Psalm 23 feels restoration. The psalmist in Psalm 80 seeks restoration. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. They have been led into the invasion and oppression of Assyria because of their sin. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come from me. David knows that the rod, the correction of God is a good thing. The staff, the teaching of God is a good thing. Right now, Israel is in the midst of God's rod. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. But in Psalm 80, the enemies are mocking them. The table that is in Psalm 23 is a table of feasting where the cup runs over. In Psalm 80, the cup of tears is running over. They are feasting on their tears. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the opposite of what the psalmist is 
feeling right now, but it's still the same shepherd. How can that be? How can that be that the good shepherd who leads them beside the still waters and has the cup that's overflowing and feeds them with feasting is now letting them be mocked by their enemies, feasting on their tears? Because the shepherd is holy. The shepherd is righteous. The people are unholy and unrighteous. And the shepherd knows that with correction and discipline, the true sheep will turn back to him. But those who really want to follow after their own desires and follow after the world will not listen. This is a winnowing process. This is breaking down the flock. And this is just judgment for their actions. The Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry? Anger in the Hebrew is smoldering heat. The smoldering heat of your anger is against us, and it is right. God is right to be angry, and he is right not to hear their prayers because they hate God. So people talk about prayers as if it's flippant, as if anyone can approach God in any sinful situation. No, they can't. God's anger is righteously against those who hate him. And there is much weeping. There is much struggling. But look at what the psalmist does. Never one moment does, God, does he waver from the providence of God. He knows by whose hand all this is. O oh Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry? One of the commentators called this the, the unholy trilogy, the uh, trilogy of woe. You've got God's anger. You've got fleshly fear. You have fed us with bread. And you have given us tears. And then you've got the enemies. So God, your own flesh and the enemies, you make us an object of contention. Even the hand of God is in the suffering of Israel because they deserve it. What's amazing about this is, this is written by a man of strong faith. He knows who his God is. He rightly says that my God is enthroned above the cherubim. My God is shepherd. My God is in control. And he is honest with God. What's amazing here is that his faith doesn't discourage honest lamenting, lamenting, it encourages it. How many of us are scared to be honest with God in our prayers? How many of us feel like we have to sanitize our own thoughts and feelings in our prayers? We, we, we want to su- suppress them and save God from our own fears and our own wickedness. Instead of coming to him with them and laying them before him. Oh God, I know you are responsible for all things and I lay them at your feet. This is what we can learn from the psalms. And after the second stanza, we get into the second refrain again. Restore us, O God of hosts. This escalates. Before it's restore us, O God. Here, restore us, O God of hosts. O God of hosts. The Hebrew here, Elohim Sabaoth. Now we know this from a mighty fortress. Lord Sabaoth, his name. It means uh, many hosts. It means heaven's armies. O oh God of heaven's armies. O oh God of the spiritual armies. The ones that Jesus threatened to call down on Pilate. If I wanted to, my soldiers would show up. That is our God. Not just God, the God of hosts. He calls on the God of hosts because he knows that the enemies, Assyria may seem strong, but they're nothing against God's armies. They're nothing against the God who controls legions 
of angels on fiery chariots with flaming swords. I love this imagery. I use it a lot. So the refrain escalates a little bit. And we get verse 3, starting in verse 8. Now we get, kind of get the, 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 the focus. We look at the redemption of Israel, the main redemptive event in all of the Old Testament, being brought out of Egypt. But now we see a different analogy here. We see the analogy of the vine dresser. You, still credit going to God, you brought a vine out of Egypt, and you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root, and it filled the land. So we're going to see three descriptions of Israel's state. This is past. This is what you have done. We're resting on what you have done. Now, the analogy of a vine dresser is common throughout Scripture. It's very appropriate to a living thing crafted by a master vine dresser. And this is a common practice. If you would travel and you had a family vine, you would want to continue the fruit and the juice and the wine that you would get from that. And so you would carefully transplant it. And before you transplant it, you want to clear out the rocks. You want to clear out the weeds. You want to chase off all of, of anything that would destroy that. And you, and, and you care for it because this is your family's livelihood. And so we get this picture here of a master vine dresser. He is intimately involved in having a fruit-bearing vine. And that vine does bear fruit because of the vine dresser. Look at 10 and 11. The mountains were covered with its shade and the mighty cedars its branches. Anytime you see shade in the Bible, it's a good thing. We in Florida can understand that. Shade is a good thing. When the shade covers the mountains, this is how fruitful and how good God's vine has become. And its branches, the mighty cedars, this is how far they have stretched. The cedars are over 100 feet tall in many instances. You have stretched us out. And not just the mountains and the trees, but the entire fertile crescent. Send its branches to the sea, and it shoots to the river. So we see the fruitful expansion of God's people. We see the fruitful impact that it has on the, on the land because of the vine dresser. They're dependent on his work. They are so fruitful because of him. God, you have done this. This is the only section in this psalm that is completely positive. Everything that is completely positive, the, the beginning and the end are all focused toward this. God, we know you were the vine dresser. You were the same one who did this in our past. There's a couple passages I want to look at for vine dressers. It's going to be on the screen. One we read earlier, John 15. So if you turn there. Jesus uses this analogy, and obviously we see this fulfilled in him. But in John 15, he goes into the detail of God as vine dresser and Jesus' role in that. I am the true vine, John 15, verse 1. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. This is what's going on right now. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Even if you're still there, the pruning happens and it hurts, but it's for your good, that it may bear more fruit. Why do I get disciplined? Why are things difficult? Why am I being pruned? So that you bear more fruit. That is God's whole goal is that you bear fruit and glorify him. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, this is Israel's problem. They're trying to bear fruit apart from the vine. They're not abiding in him. This is Jesus' command to his followers. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The psalmist is right here, uh, giving all the credit to God. Apart from me, you can do nothing. No good can come to you, no bad can come from you, apart from me. We won't go all the way there, but in verse 11, when we read this earlier in our corporate reading, this is why. That the things I've spoken to you, these are the things I've spoken to you, that my, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Why? Why do we need to be attached to the vine? Why do we need to be pruned? Why do the branches that don't bear fruit, why are they broken off and thrown away and cast into the furnace? For our joy. It brings God glory and it brings us joy. It is for our good. There's one more passage that speaks about exactly what is going on here, Matthew 21. Now, in Matthew 21, Jesus tells a parable, but we are reading this parable. We are are seeing it, and it it has extended into Jesus' day. Matthew 21, verse 33. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. Okay, sound familiar? He put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and leased it out to tenants, and went to another country. God sets you up. You're good. There's nothing else you need. What do they do? When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit, his vineyard, his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Jesus says these are the prophets, the prophets who went to warn Israel of their disobedience, killed, beaten, stoned. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. This is where we find ourselves. They've beaten and killed the prophets. I will send my son to my vineyard, to my vine, so that they can bear fruits, that I may be glorified for their joy. And what do they do to the son? But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. The number one sin and the sin underneath every sin is wanting to be God. Wanting what the son has, wanting to put yourself in the place of the son. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Pharisees, wise theological scholars that they are, he will put those wretches into a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him fruit in their seasons. Jesus said to them, if you never read the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruit. As a good vine dresser, he's about producing fruit. Israel was not producing fruit. They killed the servants. They killed the son. Now it is given to those who will produce fruit. And so, how do we know this is a parallel example? Pick back up in Psalm 80. So this is the beautiful vine. Look at all the things that God has done. Verse 12. Why then have you broken down its walls? Remember in the parable, he built walls. He built a watchtower. He built a wine press. But he broke down the walls. Another example here. Now we've got the vine. Those references will be on the screen. Both in Isaiah. Isaiah uh, chapter 5. Look at the language here of God as a vine dresser and his vine. How does he describe his vine? Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. 
He dug it and he cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a, vine, a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, the men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Now this has escalated to Judah. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? God clearly declaring, if the only reason you can bear fruit or be safe is because of me. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you that I will do to my vi- what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and its briars and thorns will grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed for righteousness. But behold, an outcry. This is where Israel finds itself. This is their present. The past was he brought the vine out. The present is we are wicked. But there is hope for the future. Look at Isaiah 27 quickly. There is a vine analogy because God has not given up on the vine. He is a vine dresser. He will not let the vine die. What he has started, he will finish. This is a prophecy about the day of the Lord. And how is the day of the Lord described? This is a beautiful, it's called a love poem. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, we're in uh, Isaiah 27, verse 2. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and, and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. This is how much God loves his vine, how jealous he is for his vine. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. His face shining on them brings them peace. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and the whole world with fruit and fill the whole world with fruit. For the psalmist in Psalm 80, he knows that the same shepherd who cares and corrects is the same vine dresser who propagates and prunes, breaks off branches that do not bear fruit, but he is careful and he loves his vine and he nurtures it so that it bears fruit. And if some won't, he will bring in others. And so what happens when the vine dresser removes his hand, when the vine has become arrogant? Verse 13, 12 and 13. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way will pluck its fruit. And we saw this in Deuteronomy. This is a good thing in Deuteronomy. It's a sign of abundance. If you've got enough fruit for everyone to eat off of it, great. It's because the Lord's provided. This is not good when people pluck off your fruit. Why is it not good? Because they're described as a boar. The boar from the forest ravages it. And whenever seeing what a boar has done, we've got a lot of wild boars in Florida. If you see on one side of a fence a, fence, a, a, a property that is cared for, and the other side of the fence there are wild boars, they, they, they tear it up, they root it up, they destroy everything in their path. This is what the nations are doing to God's vineyard. This is what has happened when God has brought down the walls. And not just the boars, all that move in the field. The bugs, the birds, every living thing. This is a dire situation. And after the stanza, we've got a similar refrain. Turn again, O God of hosts. Earlier we saw, 
God, give ear. Now we see God, look. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. Lord, in the past, you brought us out of Egypt. In the present, here's where we are. There's still yet a future to come. But have regard for this vine. This vine, the chosen stock, the one that you planted. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. The right hand is the power of God. God planted this vine. This is not just any vine. This is a unique vine. And for the son whom you made strong for yourself. God is not just a shepherd. He is not just a vine dresser. He's a father. And he loves this, this vine. It is not just a vine. It is a son. Israel is his firstborn son. You made us for yourself. You began the work, but it's not complete. Complete it, Lord. Continue what you've begun. Continuing in the present here, they, verse 16, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. Just like Hezekiah, he appeals to God's glory. Look what they've done to your vine. Look what they've done to your people. Look what they have done. God, you do it. Make them perish. and Rebuke them the sight of your face. God's face is light and it is shining to his people. It is rebuke and it is perishing. For those we set his anger on. This is an, an imprecatory petition. Imprecatory means calling upon God's cursing for the sake of God's glory. It is a good thing to say, God, curse your enemies, judge them because they are destroying your vine for your glory, not for selfish gain. Now we get the hope of the future. Verse 17. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand. The man of your right hand. Israel was the favored son. Verse 15. Now we don't know who this man of your right hand is. Probably the king. Maybe referring to Israel as a whole. Um, but if they don't fully understand, we have to ask ourselves the question, who could really sit at the right hand? Who could be the right hand of God? Now he rightly appeals to God's strength, the, the right hand who exalts the right hand of power, but could the king of Israel really sit at the right hand? And the problem with this son, lowercase s, Israel, is that they love their own sin. They are rebellious. They're going after other gods. That's why a new son was needed. Capital S. Second half of the verse. The son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. This is a common term, son of man. Speaks of humility and speaks of humanity. Jesus' most common title for himself. So when you look at this phrase that comes up often in Scripture, son of man, ben Adam, this... Adam means man. It shows up a lot. But when Jesus uses it, he knows that it's prophetically speaking of the one who will be at the right hand of God, but also in Daniel 7, it is so much more. It is one who stands before the Ancient of Days and is handed all dominion and power and glory. Even if the prophet here, the prophet speaking in the psalm is only looking toward the king, he is prophetically looking toward the son of man who is at the right hand of God. This is the future hope of Israel. The past is we are your vine. The present is we are being ravaged. The future is there's a son of man. Put power on him to save us. That son, the life-giving son, the unfailing shepherd, the faithful son of the vine dresser sits at the right hand. He is our mercy seat. 
The cherubim worship Him. Then, then when He comes, when your hand is on Him, verse 18, then we shall not turn back from you. Only with the Son of Man will we not be able to turn back. Again, He does not know what He's saying, but we know. Because Jesus sent His Spirit that we would be sealed. He sent His Spirit that we would be preserved and that we would never turn back. That we would be His, we would be held forever. So we get the glory of the Father sending the Son by the work of the Spirit so that the Father is glorified. The other thing that is only possible in the Son, give us life. The Spirit seals us, but the Spirit is the life-giving Spirit that we are needed, that is needed to call His name. Jesus says, you must be born of the Spirit. Give us life. This is a cry for the transformation of the Holy Spirit. That's Restoration can only happen through the Holy Spirit. And it is the Spirit who preserves. The Spirit, the Spirit of adoption in Romans 8 who gets them to call out. Give us life in one week and we will call upon your name. Through the Son of Man, we will not turn back from you. We will receive life and we will call upon your name. The Spirit of adoption screaming out through us, Abba, Father. We will call upon your name. When the Son of Man comes, the vine will begin to flourish. And the Spirit will seal it, preserve it, train it, make it anew to call out to God. And the branches that have been thrown off, new will be grafted in. Go from Romans 11, or excuse me, Romans 8 to Romans 11. These new branches will be grafted in through the Holy Spirit. He has life in Himself. We can only have life by calling on His name in faith. Then... As his sheep, we can seek his face, and his face will shine upon us. As he cultivates and prunes us as vine dresser, we have this restored humanity. We have been brought into the life-giving vine that serves and glorifies God. If we abide in him, we can do all things in him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And it is this vine, this vine that will bear fruit, this vine that shades and branches will go from sea to sea, from nation to nation. Because the vine dresser sent the vine, the true vine, that we may live in him. And then it brings full meaning to this refrain that we see again in verse 19. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine on us that we may be saved. This escalates again. Not just restore us, O God. Not just restore us, O God of hosts. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Yahweh, the covenant name. The, you have made a covenant with your people. This is what the psalmist is appealing to, the God who does not break covenant with his people, the God who loves his people. You restore us through your Son, by your Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. We are sinners. I just want to leave you with a couple things this morning. If you are one of those believers who are in a valley right now, in a rebellious time right now, call out to God to restore the joy of your salvation. If he feels far away, if things are not as they should be, if this psalm resonates, call out to God through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the finished work of the Son, to the glory of God the Father. Call out to God. And if you are here this morning and everything is wrong in your life because it's been broken at the fall, you were born into sin, and your own sin keeps you in it. Cry out to God for salvation. Call out to the God who can restore. Because that God 
It's not like the other gods who were thrown into the fire. That God is a shepherd who cares for and guides his people. That God is a vine dresser who plants and cultivates and prunes. That God is a father who loves his children, sends his spirit with them so they could cry out to him as father. Amen. This psalm is a bold appeal of a loving son who knows that he can pray boldly and directly because the son of man is his intercessor. If you are in Christ, your mercy seat, the God who is enthroned above the cherubim, has been made available to you through our high priest, who is our mercy seat. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Rebellion has consequences. You may be struggling because of your own sin. But often, the Lord just shakes up our comfort and security so that we will seek him, as Andrew Brunson did, for spiritual survival. I just want to encourage you this morning. That through Christ we are his flock. We are his vine. We are the branches that feed off of him. We are sons of the living God. And we can be honest with him. We can cry out to him. Cry out to him for the shining of his face. So that you'll receive grace and peace. His salvation and his restoration. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your grace. We praise you for your mercy, that there is even a mercy seat at all. You are shepherd and you are king. And it is because of your love that you took on flesh and walked among us. You laid down your life for us that we would become yours. Lord, let us embrace the pruning. Let us embrace the correction if we are indeed your vine. Let us run away from anything that distracts us from you. Anything that we are serving that is not you. Anything that we are exalting that is not you. That we may find joy in you. Completeness in you. Peace in you. Lord, shine your face upon us. Restore us, O God. O Lord of hosts, there is no enemy, there is no army that can overwhelm you. Lord, forgive us in our weakness. Spirit, teach us to cry out. Spirit, give us the words to say that the Son may be exalted, that the Father may be glorified, and that we may be restored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.